Um, it's, it is so funny, the culture around here. Um, you know, any Episcopal church that get done, gets done in an hour, uh, it's because the fire alarm went off. Uh, but here, uh, we, we try, to, uh, try to make sure you can make your tea time. Let's pray. <laughs> uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we give you thanks for your word and for the book of Acts, the testimony of the Holy Spirit working mightily through your church. And Lord, we trust uh, that he will work mightily through us even today in spite of ourselves. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are still in Acts chapter 6, little teensy tiny little chapter. Uh, we're going to do the second half today, uh, and we're, it's about Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs. This is verse 8. Great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. The word of the Lord. Okay. So we remember uh, earlier in Acts chapter 6, what has happened is all the Hellenist uh, Jews, Greek-speaking Jews who had come from off around the Mediterranean, were getting neglected in the daily distribution, uh, the widows especially. So what they did is they chose seven, and it birthed uh, the office of deacon. And, uh, but out of that office, there are two people in particular that get uh, a little bit uh, more, more prominent. Um, I always wonder how... Um, uh, Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parnius, and Nicholas uh, felt. I would have been happy just to get my name in the book, uh, but, but Stephen and Philip got a little more airplay, a lot more airplay. And uh, here we have Stephen, and it says about Stephen specifically, uh, he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And that's true of everybody who has been called to this office, uh, and ought to be true of all of us who are Christians. And yet there was something particular about Stephen, and his ministry wasn't just restricted to this wonderful social outreach of distributing uh, goods uh, to those in need in the Christian community, uh, but his, he had a particular gift. Uh, one, uh, he had a healing ministry. Uh, we don't know the extent of his healing ministry. Well, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, he had this you know, wonderful polyester suit on, and he had guys waiting behind people, pick them up, uh, that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, the earpiece. Ha who saw Fletch Lives? It's like, the, yeah, oh, what a great movie, right? Uh, one of the top ten worst movies of all time, but you've got to watch it. So uh, it's nothing like uh, that, uh, that scene, but he actually had a healing ministry. In addition to that, uh, he uh, was a pretty powerful preacher, uh, he was a good apologist. That is, he did a very good job of talking about the faith with people, so much so that they said what? They were left speechless. They really couldn't say anything uh, in response to him, and that frustrated them uh, to no end. And where he was preaching, where he was speaking, was not unlike uh, where the first Christian missionaries went. And where did they go? 
Take a wild guess. You'll get a prize if you get this right. Synagogues, right? They went to synagogues. Uh, I'll get myself something. So synagogues, and um, uh, they would go to the synagogues, and they would begin to debate and reason and preach. Remember, Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth, and he unwrapped the scroll and read from the prophet and said, uh, this, ser- this prophecy that you've just heard, heard has now been fulfilled. Uh, and what was their response? They tried to drive him off a cliff, right? Right there. You can go in Nazareth and see where it is. Um, and... Um, with Stephen, he goes into, sounds like he's working two synagogues. One is the synagogue of the freedmen, and the Alexandrians are there, and so are uh, the Cyrenians. Uh, but then uh, you have another synagogue uh, with Cilicians and Asians, ancient Asia, not Asia as we know today, uh, over there. And what these were were, one, the freedmen were a group of people that when Pompey swept through North Africa. You can go read about the Carthaginian Wars later. Uh, He actually took a bunch of prisoners back to Rome, and there was a Jewish community in Rome for years and years and years until they were expelled. And a lot of them ended up in Jerusalem. And so the freedmen are those people. The Alexandrians and uh, the Cyrenians, Alexandria, next to Rome, was the cultural center of the world, right there in Egypt, the capital of Egypt, and uh, Cyrene being uh, what is modern-day Libya. So that's one synagogue. They're on the southern part of the Mediterranean. Uh, and the others, uh, the Asians and the Cilicians, are up in what is modern-day Turkey. And so they have their own cultural ideas, their own thing, but at the same time, they're still Greek-speaking. Uh, so he's able to go in, even though culturally they're a little bit different, and he's, in be able, he's able to go in and preach the gospel in these places. And Luke writes about Stephen in this ministry, this wonderful little phrase, Stephen, full of grace and power. Um, Often uh, in the uh, Bible we'll hear things like, so-and-so, full of power, or something about power. But but here we have in Stephen uh, this remarkable and not often seen combination of Stephen full of grace and power. And I think that that's what made it so hard for them to refute what he was saying, because one, he was speaking with an authority, but it wasn't an authority of being like, this guy is full of himself. But it's rooted in this humility and real grace and presence of person that here he is being vulnerable and putting himself out there, and you're going to get an idea of what his preaching is like uh, next week, but Uh, this combination of grace and power uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit is so compelling. And you see this holy confidence being filled with grace and power throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. You see this uh, with Peter before the Sanhedrin where men who just months before were hiding from them in order to avoid their own crucifixion and now they're standing boldly and saying things that ought to make you cringe a little bit, right? Peter has that little dagger phrase in Acts when he says to the Sanhedrin, he says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, and when he says that, you're kind of like, ooh, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a, you know, even as Christians, you think, you could probably could have said that a little bit better. Uh, but uh, he said it, and he rightfully said it, uh, where uh, this power that is not from them, but comes from God. So going into these situations, these people who are 
definitely uh, jars of clay, cracked pots, as Paul says to the Corinthians, uh, are being used by God in these magnificent ways. And in the world in which we live in, I feel recently um, many of us, if not all of us, are being thrust into situations where we're wondering how in the world in which we live in do, I share, do we share our faith? Right. How do we share the gospel in grace and power? Okay, so we're going to look at that today. Well, one of the things is that wisdom is used four times in the book of Acts. Two of those times, it's used to describe Stephen. Stephen is not given some sort of personality trait that he's just naturally inclined to be with. But wisdom is something that, it's not knowledge, it's wisdom that comes from God. And so Stephen clearly is spending time in the Word, he's spending time praying, uh, he's doing his homework, but he knows, he's always ready to give a reason for the hope that is within him, but he knows that it's ultimately not up to him. And Stephen is a lovable guy. He's got great crowds, they're letting him preach in the synagogues. Uh, Why do they love him? The miracles. They love him because of his healing ministry. They love him because of this wonderful uh, outreach uh, to other, to to all people, and they're seeing their lives, their physical lives, transformed. But then all of a sudden, they turn on him. Why? Meddling. And what what's the uh, the mode of meddling? It's preaching. It tells them their history. Yeah. It's his preaching. Uh, And uh, some things don't change in 2,000 years. Uh, The world in which we live in is very happy for the church to engage itself in any sort of social outreach or social welfare. Uh, But the moment that Jesus is brought into the equation, people begin to back off. Now, uh, I'm not going to be critical of the world for that because that's exactly what we ought to expect. Right? That's, nothing, that's nothing new. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to say things like, turn the other cheek, carry the pack the extra mile, love your enemy. But where I will strike uh, some fault is that today in the church, there's often, in Christians individually, there's this idea that it's an either-or situation, that... A lot of churches will say, what we're going to do is that we're going to concentrate on more social outreach, uh, basically devoid of the gospel, except you might say that it's the gospel motivating you to do that, uh, and you'll leave the preaching up to somebody else. And people will say things like, well, you know, St. Francis, this is falsely attributed to St. Francis, but it makes it sound like... It's something everybody should take note. You know, that's what I used to. You know, I used to. I do. I'll make up a quote and I'll just attribute it to somebody really smart, and everyone will be like, "Oh yeah, that's really good." Like yeah. And so you know, Benjamin Franklin said, "Like oh, well, take note of that." And I mean, actually, I I said that. So, uh, you know, they'll say same says that um, that always preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Right? That's often attributed to him. Well, that uh, that's not a biblical statement. Yes. Yes, our, our lives ought to demonstrate the gospel message in action. Absolutely. Uh, but one, St. Francis never said that, and that's not the message of the gospel. So that's one idea of, well, we'll just, or the other one that, that, that brings me to shame is, uh, your life may be the only Bible that some people read. Have you ever heard that? Well, Lord have mercy. No one's going to be a Christian on the face of the earth. Nobody. <laughs> right. I mean, nobody's going to be a Christian if that's true. 
And uh, because uh, we are far cry from uh, the word of God, and uh, if anything, uh, our lives point to a merciful Savior. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end is the idea of we're not going to really do anything social, you know, human need oriented. We're just going to do all evangelism all the time, basically reducing people to a spiritual statistic, right? Get your fire insurance card, get your ticket punched to heaven, and you're all right. You're in. And in fact, there's often a lot of neglect with that. that there's a lot of intense uh, focus paid on people who... Uh, who are targets, right, who, who are possible converts, and then when they convert, you're like, okay, and then you put them aside, and then you, you move uh, to the next person. And so uh, in the world in which we live in, there seems to be this either-or uh, paradigm that's uh, manifesting itself, and there's automatically a really strong reaction, uh, one way or the other, to the other thing. And so uh, people honestly have no idea what to do with this at the Advent. So when we go to uh, mission-type events, so if our kids go off to something and our youth ministry leaders are in charge, right? Um, often what happens, and this is happening more and more, which is a good thing, is they'll say, will you be in charge of the Bible studies for the week? Right? And if we go off to something aligned with the Episcopal Church, they automatically put their fingers in their ears. We don't want to hear what the Advent has to say. Now, I'll praise the Lord. By the end of the week, they're like, oh, we had you wrong. We thought that y'all were just a bunch of crazy bigots. Uh, but, uh, and that's only true of about five or six of us. So, so, but on the other hand, when the youth would go off to something like uh, that involves more of an evangelical uh, ministry flair, they look at us with complete and total suspicion, like we don't get the gospel because we're Episcopalians. Right? They're like, have you ever read the Bible? Like, a couple times, we've, we, we, you know, um, at least every Sunday. Uh, but, and so the people look at us a little bit cross-eyed, and I'm, you know, one of my favorite African proverbs is, if, if I don't beat my drum, who will? So uh, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's beat the drum of the Advent. Um, uh, one of the things that God has done here at the Advent is it's taken this either-or paradigm and gotten back to what's happening in the book of Acts, not intentionally. It's not like we're going around saying our job is to be a New Testament church. Um, there's not any strategy to it, but God in his mercy has just seen fit to do it that, this way, is that uh, God, uh, we pray, gives us eyes to see people as people. On the one hand, the gospel is no respecter of persons, right? The gospel doesn't sort of uh, classify people and say, well, you're really needy in this area, but not so much in this area. But you're really needy in this area, but not so much in this area. But in fact, the gospel just totally levels the playing field. And what you see in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of the church is that are we concerned about your spiritual well-being? Absolutely. The only thing that's going to change your life the only thing that's going to bring things into right, the only thing that is going to give you the perspective that you actually need to face life is Jesus Christ, full stop. And yet, at the same time, uh, look at Jesus' miracle when he raises uh, the, the little girl. Remember that? Uh, he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she rises, he raises her from the dead. And what's his next statement? He tells her parents what? Give her something to eat. Right? Not 
Let's get her a pledge card, right? Uh, get this family a pledge card now. Um, but, uh, but give her something to eat. When Jesus sees us, he sees us not as spiritual, spiritual statistics, uh, but as human beings with real human needs. And even at the end of the day, so that's why we have social ministries here at the Advent. This is, but even in those social ministries, we don't separate uh, the flesh from the spirit, but we see them as an individual. So if someone comes in and says, um, I can't pay my heating bill and I need someone to help pay it. I got kids. It's just not happening. Uh, if I walked in and said, okay, I can either A, pay your heating bill or B, tell you about Jesus, what would you like? What are they going to say? Heating bill, of course. Anybody in the right mind would say heating bill. Uh, but at the same time, we realize that ultimately their deepest need is not normally their felt need. Right? So in everything uh, that the church is doing, I mean church, capital C, from the time of Acts to now, is that uh, we're seeking people out and trying to meet them where they are. But even when you do that, the moment the gospel enters into the picture, and it's not formulaic, it's not like we have this step process where pay heating bill, send book, follow up with book, <laughs> baptize whether they want to or not. You know, it's not, it's, it's not like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's uh, most of us in here, like, I, it, it can get a little bit uncomfortable when, uh, when it comes to the gospel part of it, uh, because... I think that's when it's taken out of our hands and we feel it, right? It's a lot easier for me to write a check to pay somebody's heating bill or to go buy them lunch at, at Zoe's or whatever it might be uh, because I have a little bit of control and there's nothing awkward about that. Uh, but I start talking to somebody about Jesus and I am, this is me speaking, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm even a little bit out of, I'm, I'm in the deep end, right? Uh, I'm in the deep end, and why I feel that way is, be, is actually maybe a good thing, because maybe I ought to stop trusting in myself and thinking that I've got it all together and so articulate, and maybe I should start trusting in the Holy Spirit to move in this person's heart or the people who are listening and trust that God uh, will, will change their hearts and draw them to faith and him, and that's why you see Stephen and Peter and others, this notion of grace and power and being able to, to, to preach these bold messages. Uh, now, I say without fear. I think they were nervous. I think they were really nervous. I don't want to give anybody the impression, and the Bible doesn't give us the impression that they went in and sort of said, let me tell you what. But actually, most of the sermons, especially Paul's, good grief, are marked by what? Meekness, humility, uh, clarity, certainly. Uh, but, but as John the Baptist said, I guarantee that they're praying, oh Lord, that I might decrease so that you might increase, that I might be able to get out of the way. I've told you one of the most condemning things that's ever been said to me. This is a long time ago. But I was speaking to a youth retreat on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and um, this mom came up to me at the end of the weekend and she said, you need to know that you've had a tremendous impact on my son's life. And I said, well, well praise the Lord. Uh, and she said, and I said, well, what has he said? And, and she said, well, it's, it's just, 
your message is really powerful to him. And I said, okay. And she said, you know, he told me, he says, I'm not exactly sure what he sang, but I sure like the way he says it. <laughs> and I just thought, I've, I, real, I, I failed, right? What he liked was Andrew. What he liked was Andrew. Uh, but what he wasn't able to connect with uh, was, was the message. And, um, and that's because I, had, I didn't have the faith and confidence the message actually has the ability to transform. And so right now, uh, one of the things that we're doing is sending people into the ministry who have zero confidence uh, in the Word and in the Holy Spirit, to piggyback on last week's uh, lesson. And so there's a timidity uh, about, uh, and there's not humility, but timidity. And uh, it was really striking to me. I, I was invited to a luncheon a couple weeks back to speak at a luncheon and uh, I pretty much, uh, I mean, actually there's some people from Monday night, my Monday night 20s Bible study here, uh, and probably from other Bible studies that I do, and I pretty much speak the same way. I might say some things in the 20s Bible study that uh, I won't record that one because there are some things that shouldn't be public that I say there. Uh, but um, nonetheless, uh, it's pretty much the same everywhere. And I gave up long ago on what people are going to uh, think, and, uh, and I just went in there and, and I preached, and I noticed that there were a number of men in the room, and I thought, that's kind of funny, but I started to look at them more closely and realized they're all retired clergy from the diocese. And so, um, but I, I do what I do, and I went for it, and, um, and at the very end, one of them, who I know very well, was making a beeline for me, and I thought, here we go. And he came up, and he actually had tears in his eyes, and he said, you know what, I just want to thank you. He said, uh, a lot of folks that I'm hearing coming out of seminary um, have a hard time saying the name of Jesus. And he says, we don't agree on a lot, but I, I want to thank you for at least just being willing to say his name. And, uh, and that was really remarkable for me to hear that, um, that there's a timidity even just... Uh, to mention uh, the name uh, that is uh, above uh, all names. And so in the church today, there, there is this unfortunate paradigm, either or, uh, where some people feel like that it needs to be either all social services, just the healing ministry on the one hand, or it just needs to be all preaching, uh, where uh, we're comprehensive. We come to you. We're like Maytag, right? Uh, it's, it actually is in all-encompassing uh, ministry, and Jesus doesn't care just about your spiritual self, uh, but in fact, uh, your life, your marriage, your health, your future, your children, your education, uh, whatever it happens to be, he cares for you. Now, if Stephen had just stuck with the healing ministry, we wouldn't see chapter 7 happen. Right? Who's going to argue with, with healing? Right? Oh, you just healed my daughter. Let's kill him. Right? I, I've mentioned it before. If Jesus were just a nice moral teacher, uh, if he were just going around doing miracles, there would never have been a Good Friday because nobody crucifies Mr. Rogers. Nobody does that. No one has ever thought of, of wanting to kill Mr. Rogers. And yet, um, what happens is they, 
They could not withstand, is what the scriptures, they could not withstand what Stephen was saying as he begins to preach the gospel because he's not, and it's all comprehensive again. It's all part and parcel of his ministry of what he's doing. It's not this, preaching is not an appendage, an extra thing, uh, but the gospel saturates everything. And when he begins to preach the gospel, people react strongly. And they say, he's come to change things. Now, there are a a lot of uh, reasons why um, they're going to be resistant to change and why we're resistant to change. One, uh, change in general, nobody likes change in general, uh, I don't think. And the people who say, well, I'm really into change, normally find themselves in bad situations often. And so, of course, you want to change. I mean, it's great, and that's, that's obvious. Um, uh, but most of us are pretty content in life, for the most part, with uh, a few areas excluded. Uh, and those areas where things are going well, we, we like to, uh, to keep them the same. And so, uh, if you're Jewish in, uh, in about 33 A.D., uh, you've been doing this for a couple thousand years. Uh, you're like, we're, we've been doing okay. <laughs> uh, we don't really need you. And, uh, and you, you're coming in here telling us all these things. And I, I encourage you to go back and read uh, Acts chapter 6, this portion, uh, because does this whole scene about he says that Jesus is going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days and finding false witnesses and being pulled before the council, does that, does that sound familiar? This is Jesus' trial all over again. It's the same thing, except Pilate's not involved. It's the same trial. And, uh, and there is Stephen uh, in the midst of this, and they are beside themselves. Now, one, the apostles were told not to go out and preach about Jesus anymore, and here they are doing it again. Uh, but Stephen, in particular, because his ministry is not just one of preaching, uh, but because he is in their lives, like it... It's intense. It's intense because the same person who's doing this healing uh, that they've benefited from is now preaching the gospel, and they don't like it uh, because it's true. Jesus changes everything. There are implications for the gospel. It's not just a matter of spiritual life, but it's in total. And so for people who are able to sort of say about their spiritual lives that, you know, and a lot of people have this in America um, and, and that's because this is where our culture is. Uh, but if, if your life is like a pie, and one slice of the pie is your social life, and another slice of the pie is your work life, and another slice of the pie is your family life, and uh, another slice of the pie is internet gambling, and another slice of the pie, I'm just kidding, uh, is, uh, is, is spiritual life, right? All of those things go together to, uh, to make you a good citizen, right? To make you a good, well-rounded person. But, but Jesus comes and he completely obliterates that paradigm, that, that template that we try to put on our lives and says, no, 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 no. When Jesus gets a hold of your life, everything changes. Everything changes. From the way that you interact with people, to how you spend your money, to uh, how you relate to your children, to how you relate to your boss, how you relate to your spouse, uh, how you think, uh, how you respond to things. I mean, one of the things that, uh, that here's, here's a, a fruit of the spirit, is um, things that used to not break your heart now will bring you to tears. Right? Uh, because your heart is now breaking in the same way God's is. So he changes 
everything. And this turns the world on its ear. Here's, and so the, the misconception shared by these folks in Jerusalem with Stephen is the same misconception that we have today. And I'm going to sort of paraphrase Dick Lucas because Dick Lucas was the rector of St. Helen's Bishopsgate in London for years and years and years. And um, people often want to take Christianity and put it in the box of religion, but it turns out that Christianity is the anti-religion. It's the anti-religion. And after the book of Acts, and in the book of Acts, you see this begin to be played out around the Mediterranean world, especially in the Greek-speaking world, and as you get into Rome. So uh, imagine a conversation between a Christian and a Roman citizen living in the suburbs of Corinth. And, uh, hey, I hear you're a Christian. Yeah, well, that's kind of a funny little religion. Uh, where, um, where's your, uh, where's your uh, who, who do you worship? Uh, I, worship uh, I worship Jesus. Well, what, what about the, the other gods? Oh, I don't, I, don't, I don't worship any other gods. Just, what? You don't worship any other gods? Well, uh, and, and where do you worship this god? Where's your temple? Well, we, we, don't, we don't have uh, a temple. A temple. Uh, what do you mean you don't have a, a, a temple? Where do you go to work? Uh, well, I'm actually uh, the temple. I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, God lives in me. And, and what's this that I hear about Jesus dying on the on the? Your God dies. Yeah, he dies, but he was raised from the dead. And any right-thinking Roman citizen is going to walk away from that, being like atheist. <laughs> and that's what they actually called Christians. They accused the early church of being atheist. Why? Because it's the anti-religion. It's not this neat and pretty system that everything just fits in. So uh, it's it, it basically, it's a, if it is a system, it's a system of grace and mercy. Right? That's what it is. And so the world, uh, especially these folks and the folks that are around us that we're having a hard time witnessing to, I find that my first 10 conversations with people who at least want to engage me in conversation is dismantling these crazy thoughts about Christianity. And I'll ask them, I was like, where did you hear that? Well, the Bible says, it's like, where does it say that in the Bible? Well, you know. I'm like, no, actually, I don't. Um, <laughs> these crazy ideas that have crept up around, because it's this idea of religion in our culture of, uh, you know, basically behavioral modification. Right. That's how religion is mostly used for today. And yet what happens with Christianity is that because it's not just a component of one's life and because it is comprehensive and because it's about a living God who actually comes near and dwells within you, uh, that's scary stuff. Flannery O'Connor uh, said, it's no wonder that we resist this why they resist it, why our culture resists it. She says, all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us, and the change is painful. And that's true. And so there's always, always a reaction to the gospel. No matter what, there's always a reaction to the gospel. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through, the, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. Now what's Paul saying? 
what he's talking about are Roman victory parades, right? So what would happen is Rome would, you know, sack Carthage for the 50 millionth time, or they would do something and um, defeat the Goths or whatever, and then they would come back and they would have these amazing parades. And what would be in these parades? You'd have the Roman legions marching down, but also you would have the spoils of war. You would have treasures. You would have slaves being brought back like the freedmen, being brought back. And in addition to laurel wreaths and the like, uh, what they would do is they would burn incense. And to the Roman soldier who was walking down that road with the crowds cheering and yelling, to him the smell of that fragrance was victory. It was, it was such a satisfying it was victory, it was we're home, it was, it was what, uh, this, and when he goes back out, it's the smell that lingers in his nostrils and that he longs for. But for that person who is the slave in the back, the same smell holds a totally different meaning. For them, it is death, it is defeat, and the smell repulses them. They want to get it, get away from it as far as they can, and as hard as they can, as hard as they try to get it out of their nostrils, they can't. And it sticks with them. It's in their clothes, it's on their skin, and no matter what. And they will stop at nothing to try to get it out of their system, to try to get it away from them, even to the great extent here in Acts that they're willing to kill Stephen, which is a reminder, he to them is the aroma of Christ. To those of us who are being saved, we see Stephen and we say, my man. Right? What a wonderful, uh, wonderful, faithful believer. Uh, anything I can do for you, I want to be on your prayer list. Uh, you know, I'm going to support you as a missionary. Absolutely. Uh, but to those uh, who do not believe, uh, he's more than just an eyesore. Uh, they want him out of their sight. And so even today, uh, even in uh, the... The most innocuous uh, of ways, um, uh, RG3, whatever you think of him, uh, quarterback, one-time quarterback uh, for the Washington Redskins. See, I said it. I'm sorry. ESPN's going to sue me now. Um, but anyway, so the Washington football team. Uh, but uh, he came out to do the press conference, uh, and at this point, the war between uh, Hamas in Gaza and uh, the Israelis in Jerusalem uh, had started to erupt, and he wore a shirt to the press conference that said, um, No Jesus, N O, no peace, N O. And then underneath of it, it said, No Jesus, K N O W, no peace, K N O W. Very clever. And, uh, and he was asked to turn it inside out or to remove it. And afterwards, they scrambled and they said, well, why did you ask him to do that? And he said, oh, because they're under contract with Nike and he has to wear Nike apparel and I'm pretty sure Nike didn't make that t-shirt. Uh, well, it turned out that that was totally, that that's not true, that people wear whatever they want. Like, I have a hard time believing that, uh, that the head coach for the Redskins, uh, that he's wearing a Nike necktie um, or Nike socks or whatever it is. Thank you. Thank you, Colin. Uh, whatever it might be. Uh, and so even something uh, like that, uh, you've got to get rid of it. Uh, you've got to get rid of it. it. It simply can't stand. Uh, it, 
in the, in the public square. Uh, so what uh, I am praying for is that uh, God would use places like the Advent, uh, that he would fill us with grace and power, and that we would see people the way that Jesus sees people, uh, with real needs, uh, but not just uh, their perceived or felt needs, but actually be willing to go uh, not just to the symptoms, uh, but to the heart of the matter, uh, which Jesus is that balm in Gilead uh, that makes the sin uh, sick soul whole and well. And so that's where Stephen is right now, right before uh, his, his sermon. Questions, comments, concerns? Touche, David Tanner. Touche. Is that true? What, what, which, what was the end? Yeah, thank you. Julie Goyer just said he kills people. He killed people. Um, that's really interesting. I'm going to have to think about that. You know. Green Beret or Navy SEAL turns children's show. He was a Presbyterian minister, too. He was an Presbyter- ordained Presbyterian minister. Man, he was getting a lot of pensions <laughs> at the end of the day, wasn't he? He could have bought, yeah, it's a nice sweaters. All right, y'all. That's it? Okay, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. <laughs>